Thank you, Daniel. Well, we'll continue to pray for uh, Pastor Andrew, Pastor Josh, and Dochelle are also away this weekend. Uh, grateful for the opportunity to be here with you uh, today. And when you see things going well in a church, uh, it is completely right and proper and theologically correct to, uh, to give God all the glory because everything good that happens is because of God's good grace. And so we certainly are grateful for the good things that God does in our midst. Uh, but there's also a sense in which humanly we would say uh, that, you know, faithful, good pastors will produce and create good churches. And so to that end, we're certainly uh, grateful for uh, the past leadership of Pastor Blaine, and we are grateful for the leadership that Pastor Josh and, of course, his whole team, Andrew, and, and, uh, and the, whole, the whole team uh, that's uh, Rick and, and the whole elder team as well that's providing for, uh, for the church here. And, and it would also be true, though, uh, that not only do, do good, good leaders produce good churches, but it would also be true that good churches create good leaders and bless those pastors. And so uh, let's uh, be supportive and encouraging and blessings, uh, offer blessings uh, on the hard work that uh, the whole pastoral team uh, and the uh, board here uh, at CCC as they seek to give leadership uh, to this uh, community of believers and, uh, and are grateful for them. Next month is Pastor Appreciation. And uh, after last week's message, I thought, well, maybe we should take an offering and we could uh, raise the monies for a completely refurbished 1954 Buick Skylark for, uh, for Josh and Dochelle. Now, can we do that? Uh, Josh, if you're listening to this later in the week, uh, there's no offering taking place, but know that we do love you. Uh, you would have had to be here last week uh, for that. Well, we are in the book of Ephesians, and, and I love this book. Uh, so please turn with me to Ephesians 2, and before we uh, stand to read this passage, uh, let me ask you to do something. Uh, let me ask you to do something a little, bit, um, uh, a little bit of multitasking here, something a little bit odd, but I want you to, in your mind, with a little bit of candor here, I want you to envision somebody for whom you're struggling a bit. Maybe it's a group of people that... that you don't, you're not particularly fond of. And so for some of you, it might be the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. And for others, it might be the Stampeders. For some of you, it's people who like country music. I don't know. But I want you to you know, envision, envision uh, either a person or a group of people that you're not particularly fond of. Or maybe it's somebody that's, uh, that's hurt you and you actually are feeling resentment towards I'm going to put that on the shelf because we're going to come back to that in a few minutes. Now let's look at Ephesians. Let's stand and we'll read together Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 21. And you can follow along as I read from this passage. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the flesh and by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off and have been brought near by the blood of Jesus, for he himself is our peace, 
who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, and in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Can I have a seat? This is a great passage. It's a wonderful passage of Scripture, and there's just simply so much here for us, and it starts with that word, therefore. So let's, of course, remind ourselves of the context, and if perhaps you're parachuting in uh, to the series in Ephesians here, or perhaps you're visiting here with us uh, at CCC today, let me give you a little bit of context here. In chapter 1, Paul has been addressing the whole theme of who we are and what we have in Christ. And in chapter 1, he talks about how we have been chosen in Christ. And this is a mystery. But he drives home this, this reality that, that God is the author and architect of our salvation. Not one of us got up this morning, got down on our knees and said, God, thank you for making me so smart that I would trust you and follow you. Now he wooed us, drew us into relation with him. And in chapter 1, we're chosen in Christ. Then chapter 2, the first nine verses, we're made alive in Christ. And Josh walked us through this passage, and he he used this beautiful image of this dilapidated, old, rusted-out vehicle and how the refurbishing, the renewal that takes place as we are made alive in Christ by grace you saved through faith. Not, Not of yourself, not of works that no one can boast, been saved by grace through faith. But then verse 10 acts as a bit, of a, a bit of a hinge here, because in verse 10 we read how we have responsibilities in Christ. And we saw how we were created to do good works, to do something meaningful, something significant. So God just didn't bring us into a relationship with him to have a relationship, but also to give us responsibility. And we are created to do good works, works which had been pre-engineered, designed beforehand, in advance. Almost like a a little Lego piece in a a very complex Star Wars toy. So here's the image he's creating. And then the passage that we've just read. Here we learn how we have been made one in Christ. One in Christ. That is what we now have. Now Paul begins this section by appealing to the unsettledness that we all sometimes feel. The sense of alienation. Sometimes we feel that because of some unraveling in our family relationships. Or maybe we've been relocated because of job or employment. We're in a new 
setting, a new city, a, a new context, maybe even a new country. And we feel this sense of aloneness. We feel the sense of disconnection. We see, feel a sense of alienation. Or perhaps it's even in a social setting where you're with other people, but the reason for the gathering is because of some common elements. Maybe it's their, maybe it's their beauty. Maybe it's their wealth. Maybe it's their accomplishments, the, the career or, or, or skills or trades that they represent. Maybe it's their intelligence. And, and you feel like, though you're part of this group, you feel alien. You feel like, like one of these things does not belong. And you're feeling this weight. And Paul appeals to that sense of alienation. Here we are, alone with our twisted selves. And he appeals to that and then he drives it further to that deeper core alienation, which is our alienation from God. And in verse 11, he says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by, by that which is called the circumcision, by the Jews, of course, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that at one time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is what it was like. You were without God. You were without Christ. You were aliens. You were strangers. You were without hope. You're disenfranchised in chapter 1 and chapter 2. He's describing this condition that we found ourselves in, separated from God and separated from one another. Again, this sense of alienation. On the surface, socially, sociologically, and spiritually, but deeper, it was a core alienation from God. This was the state that these Ephesian people were once in. Now, in this passage, let me... Let me review what we, we already know. But the Jews and the Gentiles did not get along. They did not like each other. These were very different communities described and characterized by extreme prejudice. They trusted. They did not trust themselves. Zero trust. They avoided each other socially. Marketplace dealings, certainly in their worship. They thought differently politically, religiously, culturally. And this wasn't just, wasn't just a, an ignorance-based prejudice. There was oftentimes vitriol and, and, and hatred here. Now, we don't have to read the news blogs, or we don't have to listen to the news very long before we'll hear about some sort of racial profiling or racial tensions or some sort of act of genocide or ethnic cleansing in the news today in the sophisticated, well-educated, progressive world that we find ourselves living in. It also existed in history, and it also existed in biblical history. This was the world in which Paul was writing, and he says, it's now different. Look at verse 13. But now, this hostility This tension, it's all different. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Everything is different now because of the power and the implications of the gospel. Because we read, for he himself is our peace. He is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, of course, in the cross. The dividing wall of hostility. Of course, he was likely not only referring to a symbolic wall of hostility, but a real wall of hostility that divided 
that are divided Gentiles from, from the Jews there in the temple. But here, it's certainly so much, so much larger. He's torn down that hostility by abolishing the law of the commands expressed in the ordinance that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, and so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, and thereby killing, destroying the hostility that once existed between the two. Now in Christ, it's all different. Now in Christ, we have, he says, access to the same Spirit and to the same God and Father. We have access to the same God because the gospel is that great equalizer. So when we think of our world, which is full of conflict and political hostility and partisanship and discrimination and racism, education and empathy will help. And there's all kinds of examples where education and empathy has helped. But it will never accomplish the ultimate objective of reconciling. It's not until, not until we can come to grips with our own bent, twisted, broken, selfish depravity. And the person with whom we're dealing come to grips with their own bent, distorted, twisted, broken, selfish depravity. And then as together we discover this profound expression of love in Jesus and his sacrifice and we experience forgiveness. And that once we've experienced forgiveness, then we can reach out and extend forgiveness when we've been betrayed and hurt. And receive forgiveness as well. It is the gospel that's the great equalizer. That brings us back into a relation with God. Out of that alienation. Out of that separation. Back into a relation with God. And back into a relationship with others. And so when we think of what's going on in the world, the, the, the tensions in the Middle East, Jewish-Arab tensions, when, when we read about the incredible tensions and hostilities and vitriol between the Republicans and Democrats to our neighbors to the South, it's unbelievable. And we hear about the racial tensions there. And when we read about tribal conflicts in various African countries, and we read about ethnic tensions in Eastern Europe. And we look at our own tragic tensions between, in some cases, indigenous and non-indigenous communities. What will reconcile? Education and empathy? It will help. It's a noble initiative. But it's the gospel. And so when you think of that person, take them back off the shelf now, that person you, you just don't like, the scriptures say, for that person, we're one in Christ. If they've entrusted them, their life into Christ and you've entrusted your faith in Christ, we are one in Christ. The wall of hostility, the division has been broken down. And this is Paul's thrust here, that we are one in Christ. Now, what Paul does here, he wants to drive this home. He wants them to get this because this was a profound religious, spiritual, cultural change. 
See, before, Gentiles could become proselytes, but they never became Jews. But now it's all different in this thing called the church. And so Paul gives us five, certainly four, but I think likely five metaphors to, to drive home this new reality, this new relationship, this, this, this new and significant identity. And so the first, the first image or metaphor that he uses is that of a body, a physical human body, a living organic body. And he also uses the phrase new man. And he uses this image of the Christ, of, of, of the church of Christ being like a body. He does this in chapter 1, and then he does it significantly and, and, and sequentially throughout the rest of the book of Ephesians. In fact, this is a dominant image, a dominant metaphor that Paul uses in all of his literature. And, and so, so the implications of, of thinking of that we're, we're like a, a living being with different organs and different parts and while there's different parts and different organs, we, we are one body. We are one entity, one living being. Now, I, I, I want to illustrate this through other passages of Scripture. And let me take you to a real classic one, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You can follow along or listen as I just read from a few verses in this chapter. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul teases this out a little bit more fully for us. And he says in chapter 12, verse 12, For just as... The body is one. He's talking about the physical body. And just as the physical body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. So he's saying, look at the physical body with all of its complexity, with its various organs, with its various appendages, and it has diversity, but it's one body, and so it is with Christ. It is it is one. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of the one spirit. And then Paul, I think somewhat humorously, invites his readers to envision parts of the body talking to itself. And he says, imagine. Imagine Imagine the ear talking to the eye. Hey, I wish I were an eye. You're so pretty, you're so beautiful. I'm this big floppy earlobe. And, 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 and imagine this kind of conversation going on. Then he uses the analogy of, of the foot talking to the, the hand. Oh, hey, I wish I was a hand. You've got such nice features. I'm just these dirty feet. And, and he says, such would be bizarre, such as incredulous, such as, such as beyond imagination. Right? There's no more honorable parts. What he's driving home is that every part in the body, physical body, matters. And together they make up one. One body. Here's an interesting observation from well, really a couple of dec- decades ago. It's, it's actually it's, it's somewhat less in recent years. But for a number of years, there were, there were all kinds of instruments and tests whereby you could discover your spiritual gift. And that's significant. Discover how God has called you and the gifts and abilities that he's resourced you with. But sometimes we became so enamored, so focused on what my spiritual gift was. And, and that's not unimportant. 
But the whole thrust that Paul is making in 1 Corinthians 12 is less about your individual contribution and it's far more about how cumulatively and together we represent the whole. And our objective is not to develop ourselves. Our objective is to edify the body. We, we, we read then just at the end of this paragraph, he says, verse 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together because, because we're one. He says exactly the same thing if you flip over to Romans chapter 12. It's, it's not as developed quite as significantly. But he says virtually the same thing in verse 4 of, of Romans chapter 12. He says, For as in one body we have many members, and the, the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. One body and we all belong to one another. And this word one, it's haste. It's, it's the same word that we frequently read of, of things becoming singular in, in function and purpose. And so, if we were to think of Jesus' words in Matthew 19, in marriage, the two become haste, one flesh, one singular, same entity. This is what's in view. We are, we are one body. And, and so, Paul really wants us to appreciate just how significant it is that we now have become one. Jews, Gentiles, people from all backgrounds becoming one. That's the first metaphor. There's another metaphor he gives us. He gives us the metaphor of being citizens. We are citizens. No longer strangers, he says, but citizens. Peter uses a similar language when we read earlier this morning, how we're part of a holy nation. We are legal members of a sovereign state. And sovereign in the fullest sense of the word, isn't, isn't it? Because we're part of the kingdom of God. And we're citizens. And if you've ever seen a, a, a video clip of, of a new Canadian, particularly someone who's come from a very hostile, oppressive context, another country, and they become Canadian citizens, the joy and the, the freedom and, and the gratitude that is on their faces. Well, that's what's in view. We're part of something new. A, a, a new nation. A holy nation. A singular holy nation. And then he gives us yet another metaphor. That of family. He calls us members of the household of faith. And here, developed in other Pauline pieces as well, that we've been adopted, grafted, welcomed into God's family. Siblings, brothers and sisters with one common father. And again, the joy of adoption when you come out of a, an orphaned situation. Now you've been chosen to be part of a family. Single family. And you're united with that family. Th then he gives us yet another Metaphor, and that of a building. Look at verse 20 again. He says, We've been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, the foundation stone, out of which everything is measured and related, in whom the whole structure 
being joined together grows. It's, it's developing. It's, it's like a construction site, really. And things here are joined together, literally fit or framed together. It, it has, again, that image. They didn't have Lego then, but it has this image of this Lego piece, and every piece has a role to play. And this beautiful structure, this architectural wonder, is, is, is growing, expanding, and being developed. So with the body image, we have this healthy body that's growing and here with the building image we have this facility that's expanding and growing it's 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 organic it's alive it's developing and so here he uses this image of a building and then he perhaps digs a little bit deeper on this one either it's the same image or perhaps it's another image but he calls us a temple he says we're growing into a holy temple in the lord in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And the reason I'm simply separating those, I think that the emphasis on building is that we're a construction site, but as a temple, we're we're the dwelling of God. And, And certainly, for those who were Jewish and those who understood the significance of the temple in Israel, this would have enlarged their imagination and understanding their, their, their understanding of how God no longer lives in fixed framed walls but he lives in his people and Paul wants his readers and, and everyone who reads this book and the generations that followed to fully grasp and appreciate that while we've been chosen in Christ and while we've been made alive in Christ, we are now one in Christ. That's why these metaphors are here, and that is the thrust of this passage. Now, what are the implications of this? The implications are significant and, and, and multiple, but let me just speak broadly. The most clear and pressing implication here is that everything we do impacts others everything we do so let me illustrate this morning Uh, I'm going to ask for two volunteers oh oh Jamie oh Jeff thank you for volunteering come on up these two guys to illustrate something Jeff I'm going to ask you to stand in this chair here just stand there Jamie you stay here and I'm going to ask you to stand in this chair here I'm not going to ask you to do anything weird it's okay you stand in the chair. Okay, and I want you to imagine, hold your hands out like this. I want us all to imagine that Jamie has a string that goes to the leg on Jeff's chair. And the other string is attached to Jeff. And Jeff has a string that goes to Jamie's chair. And the other string, of course, is attached to Jamie. Now, if Jeff is ticked off with Jamie and he yanks on that string, what's going to happen to Jamie? Down. And as Jamie goes down, what happens to Jeff? He, he goes down too. Exactly. Because the strings are also attached to their, their chair legs. Now, if you imagine every one of us in this room have two strings... And they're attached to all kinds of people in this room. And they're all attached to each other's hands and to each other's legs. And although Jeff and Jamie may see things differently, 
and Jeff yanks on Jamie's string, but we're all connected, what kind of implication does that have for all of us? We're all impacted. We're all impacted. You, you guys can have a seat. Thank you so much. Because we're connected. And this is why Paul says, when one suffers, everyone suffers. And when one rejoices, everyone should rejoice. Because this is good news for everybody. It's good news for the, the body. Because we're, we're one. We're one. Let me share with you a story. Some of you perhaps have read this by Paul Brandt. Christian physician, counselor, author. And he offers this gripping lesson that, that fully teases out this, this metaphor of the church being a body. Listen to what he says. A tumor, and he uses the image of, of, of the body and its relative health, or lack thereof. He says, a tumor is called benign if its effect is fairly localized and it stays within membrane boundaries. But the most traumatizing condition in the body occurs when disloyal cells defy inhibition. They multiply without any checks on growth, spreading rapidly throughout the body, choking out normal cells. White cells armed against foreign invaders will not attack the body's own mutinous cells. But physicians fear no other malfunction more deeply. It is called cancer. For still mysterious reasons, these cells, and, and they may be cells from the brain, liver, kidney, bone, blood, skin, or other tissues, they grow wild and out of control. Each is healthy, a healthy functioning cell, but disloyal, no longer acting in regard to the rest of the body. Even the white cells, the dependable palace guard, can destroy the body through rebellion. And sometimes... They recklessly reproduce, clogging the bloodstream, overflowing, overloading the lymph system, strangling the body's normal functions, such as in leukemia. Because I'm not a surgeon, Brandt writes, because I'm not a surgeon, pardon, pardon me, because I am a surgeon and not a prophet, he says, I tremble to make the analogy between cancer in the physical body and mutiny in the spiritual body of Christ, but I must. In his warnings to the church, Jesus Christ showed no concern about the shocks and bruises his body would meet from external forces. The gates of hell shall not prevail against my church, he said flatly in Matthew 16. But he moved easily, unthreatened among sinners and criminals. But he cried out against the kind of disloyalty that comes from within. When, when the body turns on itself. So, next week's Thanksgiving, right? And many of you will be planning some celebrations. For some of you, though, it's going to be a, a tough gathering because there's some issues in the family. And it's weighing heavily on you. And maybe you're at the center of that issue. Maybe you're not at all, but it's, it's impacting you. Let me, let me illustrate this. I've shared in various settings in chapel and in other contexts. I come from a home that devolved and dissolved. When I was about 12, my parents went their separate ways, and I lived with my mother. But let me give you a little bit of background because... I've actually developed some greater clarity as to some of the key pivotal events that took place in that 
dissolution. So my parents immigrated from Germany after the war. There were three children, my older brother, my older sister, and then myself, uh, born here. My brother's born in, in Germany. My sister and I were born here in Canada. And my parents never had a harmonious relationship. It was always tense. My father was a, a difficult man. He was a harsh man. And my parents never modeled uh, a loving and affectionate home. But we were a family. As dysfunctional as perhaps it was, we were still a family. My brother left when he was 17 to join the Air Force. And I so looked up to my brother. He had a guitar. He listened to the Beatles. And he went to the Air Force. I just, wow. And so one particular Christmas, he was coming home. This was several years later. Uh, he had married, and he had a little girl. And he was coming with his new wife and his infant to spend Christmas. And I think I was, I was preparing. I thought I was probably around eight or nine. And I'm thinking, this is, this is, this is going to be a phenomenal Christmas. I mean, it, my brother's coming back with his wife and with his baby, and we're going to be a family. And I was just so excited. I was beside myself. And so my brother and his family arrive on Christmas Eve, we have some celebration and then Christmas Day. And then mid-morning, I go outside, snowy, beautiful, picturesque in Muskoka, Ontario. And I'm cleaning off the snowmobile because we're going to go snowmobiling on Christmas Day. And so I clean it off and I put gas in it. And I come back in the house. And my brother is packing his bags. And my mother is weeping. And his new wife is ashen white. And their baby's crying. And I'm thinking, what is going on? I'm eight or nine. And I'm thinking, what is going on to this ever so special Christmas? And my brother gets in his car. And they leave. Something happened that day, relationally and symbolically. The family was over. And my brother and my father never had a conversation again. My father never met his grandchildren. And the family was over. It took another three, four years before my parents finally said, this is enough. And they ended it. It was a family, and it was ripped apart. What's the, what's the point that Paul's getting at here? We're one in Christ. So act like it. Act like it. Now, the blood of Adam pumps through your veins and my veins. And there's residual effects. And we're, we're all grappling with what it means to be shaped in the image of Jesus. But this is what we are, and this is how we're called to live. We're one. Your family unit is one, protected. This congregation is one. So let's treat each other like family, and we'll bump into each other, and let's work it through, and 
And when somebody's doing well, let's not be jealous. Let's celebrate. And when someone's hurting, let's come alongside of them and support them. And this local expression is one with the gathering and Moose Jaw Church of God and Hillsdale Baptist in Regina. It's one with Egyptian Christians who are being persecuted for their faith. And it's one with megachurches that find themselves in hard times because of leadership failings. Nobody wins when things implode. We all lose. But when others are doing well, we all do well one in Christ so let's do everything we can by the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us to act like it Father in heaven as we read your scriptures we read in John chapter 17 entering the passion week soon to be betrayed arrested and crucified your son prayed for us he said I'm coming to you Holy Father keep them in your name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one and while Father we confess we do not fully understand the Trinity we believe in the Trinity one God three persons an eternal community, an eternal unity that is one. And in Christ, you've made us one. Would you help us to live this way? What unites us is not political alignment. What unites us is not economic homogeneity. What unites us is not cultural values or distinctives, but what unites us is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, where we have messed up and where we have let you down, forgive us. Would you, by your Spirit, give us wisdom and courage to do something to move in the right direction? And Father, when we see suffering, help us to come alongside and support. And when we see celebration, help us not to pop their bubbles and balloons, but help us to to rejoice with them. Help us to be the body, the citizenship, the family, the building, and the temple that you've called us to be by your son Jesus and because of his work on the cross accomplished through the work of your spirit. This we pray with deep gratitude in Jesus' name. Please stand.